Live from the Mecca Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face. -face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. I am here with uh, part of a very wonderful family. We have Cade here to my left, holding Kayla. And then we have, um, we have they're all cousins. And then we have Sha Shana and Adriana being held here by Aubrey and Nicole. Now, uh, Aubrey, I mean, Nicole is married to Cade, and Aubrey is Nicole's sister. And at Burning Heart, I had the opportunity to not only baptize these three adults, but their mom as well, Sherry, who lives in St. George. So uh, really been a blessing to know these guys. They've all been on Bishop Earl's show for interviews, and you're going to be able to see, you've already seen Nicole probably, but you'll be able to see uh, the others later on. And we might have a little interview special here right now. Now, we're going to ask Shana what, who Jesus is. God. Look at that. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being on the show, you guys. God bless you guys. We uh, praise the true and living God for allowing us to be part of his ministry. May he be with you and us tonight. Want to learn more about the Word of God? Join us Sundays at the University of Utah at 10 and then 2.30 p.m. Go to campus, C-A-M-P-U-S dot com for more information. By the way, some of you are aware that on our Sunday gatherings, we worship by singing the Word of God put to music. We produced our first CD, first 17 verses of that, and called it In His Words, Volume 1. Tonight we are making In His Words, Volume 2, available to the general public. Take a look and listen.
In his words, volume one and two, 34 uh, verses put to music available now at www.hotm.tv. You can also get Joseph Smith stickers, I mean, Joseph Smith t-shirts there at the same uh, website. That was pretty handy, wasn't it? Uh, ever listen to AM820? AM820 is a Christian radio station here in Utah. Great station on, on Sundays from 1 to 2. They replay Heart of the Matter, so check that out. If you've watched the show uh, for any length of time, you know that we are wholly behind a, a, a product, so to speak, a tool called Transitions. It's an extremely well-developed tool that Christians, uh, Christian churches can use to train themselves to help Latter-day Saints who are coming out of Christianity and into, out of Mormonism and into Christianity. Um, there are three important things to bring to your attention about Transitions tonight. Number one. You can get all the information you want about transitions by going to www.mormontransitions.org. Number two, this coming Saturday, there is a free LDS in Transitions training seminar. It's for anyone who wants to know how to use the transitions tools. It's going to be this Saturday, September 8th from 9 till noon at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church. Address should be up on the screen. It's at 8575 South, 700 East, Sandy, Utah. That's Good Shepherd Lutheran Church. Finally, beginning tonight, right after this program, stay tuned because there's going, they're going to begin a special four-part transitions segment airing right here on TV20. So right after Heart of the Matter, in the comfort of your own home, you can see the transitions program and how it works played to you. So as soon as we say see you later, stay tuned and you'll be able to watch it here on TV 20. The first of four parts and it's gonna be played for the next month. Last Saturday afternoon as storms raged in Utah County to the south and Ogden to the north, we gathered uh, with up to 250, 300 uh, plus maybe people in a Dry Murray Park for our annual summer event, uh, Burning Heart 2012. We remain dry right up to the very end. Take a look.
Special thanks uh, to Steve Waugh and Sean for the photographic genius. There was a lot of great music uh, there provided by Chris Taylor and the Greco brothers. Paul Wright dazzled the audience with his musical abilities. And, and then we toned it down with the McCraney sisters presenting the word of God as we took communion. After that, uh, we did uh, the open water baptisms. 31 people uh, baptized there at the park that afternoon. And uh, for each one of them presenting a beautiful uh, expression of faith. And uh, with two people left to baptize, the rain began to fall. And man, once it started, it started. So we thank the true and living God for his grace and love, for the gospel that brought us all together, for everyone who attended, everyone who participated, uh, gave their times and talents, uh, shared love, talked with each other. Uh, there was a gentle spirit of uh, celebratory love over the whole proceeding, and we are grateful. If you missed it, know that you were missed. Uh, three events for your calendars. First, this coming Thursday night, September 6, 7 p.m., I'll be speaking at Calvary Chapel, Cedar City. So if you've been watching Heart of the Matter down there in southern Utah, you know who you are. Grab your family, your friends, your neighbor, whatever. Come on up to Calvary Chapel, Cedar City. That's Thursday, 7 p.m. Then the following week on Saturday, September 15th, I have the pleasure of speaking at, a, at an event in Spanish Fork. They're calling it the Good News Celebration. Uh, you can get more information about that at www.goodnewscelebration.com. Doris Hansen, Dennis Sigley will be speaking. Adams Road will be performing down there. And uh, so check that out. Finally, this is going to be really good. They did it last year. Um, Norman Geisler, uh, Dr. Norman Geisler, is going to be speaking on how to interpret the Bible and dealing with alleged errors in the Bible on Sunday, September 23rd from 1 to 3.30 p.m. at the Grace Community Bible Church in Sandy. Now, um, I am so committed to this that we're going to cancel our afternoon church uh, gathering on that Sunday, the September 23rd Sunday, so that people can go and attend this. Uh, it's, we're so behind people understanding the Bible, both verse by verse, and Norman Geisler, to me, is one of the greatest living experts on how we can trust the Bible. In fact, the name of the series is called Interpreting Our Trustworthy Bible. So again, that's Sunday, September 23rd, 1 to 3.30 p.m. If you have questions, uh, go to uh, their website at Grace Community Bible Church. Well worth anybody's time. Set everything down. Go and check that out because that is worth its weight in gold. Okay, so... Uh, let me take one second and explain to you how God works in our lives. Over the past year, he's, of the past seven years, he's surprised us time and time again in this ministry. Sometimes when things seem to be coming apart at the seams, he steps in with somebody with a forgiving attitude, the right words, and uh, when we would have imploded, everything is calmed. Sometimes people show up with support that involves a serious financial situation the ministry is faced with and just based on their faith and their trust in the Lord, them leading, they just come up and help. And it, and it comes at the right time, and it's always appreciated. There are times when people on their own accord actually act without us even knowing it. They do things, and, and it just seems to prosper. As an example of that, years ago, there was a young man from Norway talk, emailed me about this YouTube thing, didn't know what YouTube was, said go ahead, and now there are thousands of clips of Heart of the Matter on YouTube, and the ministry is known worldwide because of his efforts. Well, last week, we witnessed another amazing proof of God working through willing people on our behalf. His name, Eliko D. 
and he's a Peruvian man living in the greater Los Angeles area. He sent this email to me. This is the email in its entirety. Dear Brother Sean, I have finished translating Born Again Mormon into Spanish. Who should I forward it to be distributed? I seek no monetary compensation for this. Eli. That's it. That's all the guy says. I've never talked to him before. I've never received an email from him about him doing this. He didn't know if we were in the process of doing this or not. And he was led. He acted. He, uh, he said it just flowed through him going at it. He types with two fingers going at it three months straight and produced a manuscript. of born, I was a born-again Mormon in Spanish. The day after receiving the email, I drove to East Los Angeles and met Eliko at a McDonald's restaurant. I'm walking to the McDonald's. He, this guy walks up. This Peruvian man, he's carrying a, a soft drink and he's carrying his breakfast and he goes, hi, Sean. And he had in his pocket a CD of Born Again Mormon translated entirely into Spanish. What a gift because the, the Mormon church has infiltrated Spanish-speaking countries and these people, they desire to know the truth, but there's not many things that they have available to them. And so we are so grateful that we are going to be able to provide this book to them in this translated uh, copy. We thank Aliko and uh, all his work and everybody else and the things they do on God's uh, errand and on God's time and dime, leading them. It is such a blessing. We have three inane and somewhat interrelated topics that I have to cover tonight. Uh, inane topic number one. On September 1st, Salt Lake Trib writer Peggy Fletcher Stack wrote the following. Maybe now reporters, bloggers, outsiders, and even many Mormons will accept that the Utah-based Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints does not pro prohibit uh, drinking cola. On this paragraph alone, we could spend the entire night. Just what she said in that paragraph, but we're not going to. It's another day. She continues, on Wednesday, August 29th, the LDS Church posted a statement on its website saying that, quote, the church does not prohibit the use of caffeine and that the faith's health code reference to hot drinks does not go beyond coffee and tea. A day later, the website wording was slightly softened, saying that only the church revelation spelling out health practices does not mention the use of caffeine. She goes on, the same goes for the church's two-volume handbook, which the LDS leaders use to guide their congregations. It plainly states that, quote, the only official interpretation of hot drinks in the word of wisdom is a statement made by early church leaders that the term hot drinks means coffee and tea. Fletcher Stack adds, that doesn't mean church leaders view caffeinated drinks as healthy. They just don't bar members, say, from pounding a Pepsi, downing a Mountain Dew, or sipping a hot chocolate. Now, listen to what Fletcher Stack uh, says to this point. Quote, even GOP presidential nominee Mitt Romney has been seen drinking an occasional Diet Coke. End quote. How pathetic can you get? I mean, even Mitt Romney has been seen drinking an occasional, you know, it's an occasional Diet Coke. These people have something stuck so far up their bodies that they, they really think that this is an important worldwide issue to make sure it is clearly understood. This line brings this insipid nature of the topic to a head. First of all, Mormonism and their leaders have allowed the mystique of no caffeinated drinks to exist. 
maybe well before I was a kid and when I was a kid and as a teen and as a young member in the LDS church before I left. I mean, there was always a stigma if you went to a church gathering and somebody dared bring Coke, Diet Coke, Dr. Pepper. I mean, and there was always someone who said, that shouldn't be here. I mean, always. So they have allowed that stigma to exist amongst themselves. Why? Because it's a control issue. It's a way to keep people uh, an us versus them mentality and keep their members focused on superfluous idiocies like who is drinking what type of pop Instead of, does God have a body of flesh and bone? And is the Book of Mormon true versus the Bible? So they, they focus on this type of stuff. It's a game of who conforms and who doesn't. They like to play in their stakes and wards. This is the purpose also of the, of the press release. It's manipulation. It's laughable. When are they going to release something official that literally talks about a doctrinal issue? When are they going to release something that says Jesus really is the spirit sibling of Satan? They really believe that. When are they going to talk about that publicly? Or whether, you know, the, uh, everybody has to embrace Mormonism to live with Heavenly Father after this life. When will they bring that up? No. They want to talk about soda pop and who can drink what. And now the church has said, it's okay. We don't, we don't really think it's healthy for you, but it's not forbidden. From I, I, I can't believe it. I can't believe this empty schnitt. So... Uh, that's schnitt. It's schnitzel. Okay, now, listen to this paragraph uh, by Fletcher Stack, the Ellsworth Tuhi of the Trib. It sounds so important and ridiculous at the same time. Ready? This week's clarification on caffeine is long overdue, said Matthew Jorgensen, a Mormon and longtime Mountain Dew drinker. <laughs> I, it's, it, it's just amazing. Listen, it's red herrings pulled out in the face of far more important issues so they can remain undiscussed. Jesus, he settled the whole dietary thing long ago. This is what he said in Mark 7:15. There is nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him. But the things that come out of him, those are they that defile the man. That's it right there. I could eat battery acid right now. It might kill me, but it doesn't defile my soul relative to God. There is nothing that I can ingest that's going to defile me before God, especially in somebody who has been cleansed by the blood of Christ. In name topic number two, yesterday or Sunday, our family was invited by Derek and Danita to attend the Salt Lake Bees game. I'm guessing that this was a day for all Salt Lake LDS missionaries to attend too because they were buzzing all over the place in seas of white shirts. I got to thinking about white shirts and, and their ties at, that the Mormons wear, that their missionaries are seen everywhere in their uniform, that their leadership wears nothing but. And IBM used to demand that same uniform of their salespeople. The military has a mandatory apparel identifiers they require their people to wear. But what about Jesus? Have you ever thought of this? Does Jesus give any attention to what his disciples were to wear when they went out and shared the gospel? If Mormonism is a restored gospel, brought back what Jesus, why the focus on this aspect of the faith that the Lord said nothing about? Would Jesus demand believers to wear the same apparel or would this be of the rule of men as another means of control? And inane topic number three. I call it Sabbath day inanity. Last Sunday between our U of U gatherings, I was with my two daughters, Mal and Cass, and Mary having lunch when a pair of couples walked into the Rubio's 
Mexican place on 4th South. One of the couples was obviously LDS, still dressed in their Sunday best, the man in his white shirt and tie uniform. And as they passed our table, I, say, I said to them what I say to every Latter-day Saint I see in a grocery store or a restaurant on Sunday. They passed by and I said, Sabbath day, just Sabbath day. And uh, this caused the very refined man to turn and he said, we're traveling from out of town. This is what the guy says to me. As if traveling makes it okay to break one of the commandments they think came from God. Traveling is okay. I mean, uh, I looked him straight in the eye and said, so what? So what if it's uh, you're away from town? You believe that Sunday is a Sabbath day. You believe you have to obey it. You answer a question that you obey that day when you go into the temple uh, and wear those garments that are underneath that white shirt. You say you obey the Sabbath day, and right now you are willfully breaking it according to what your leaders say the Sabbath day observance is all about. I mean, for this man to defend his Sabbath breaking with the excuse that he was traveling that day is like a man saying, hey, I'm committing adultery because my wife's not here. I, I mean, a commandment's a commandment. You obey it or you don't. And, and, and they, they have deluded themselves into thinking that they can willy-nilly choose when to obey and when not to obey. Uh, whenever I can talk to the LDS on days like the Sabbath, I will do it every single time because uh, I do it as a mean to show they are in violation of what they believe God says. I could care less about the fact that they dine out on Sunday, but they care or claim to. They say that it's a commandment that must be kept in order to be temple worthy, which means uh, in order to be temple worthy, that means celestial kingdom worthy. They have set the bar and they teach that the law must be lived, uh, but they let themselves kid themselves in the face of all that. Two passages of scripture that I bring to their attention right now that makes me say things on days like Sunday to Latter-day Saints. Galatians 3.10. Read this carefully. For as many as are of the works of the law under, uh, are under the curse. For it is written, cursed, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. You cannot say, I will be saved by obedience to the law and then not keep the law. Cursed is everyone who lives under the law and does not keep the whole law. Whole law. So what I do is I am trying to point out to them, you better live up to every single law and commandment that you embrace and say is going to save you, exalt you, because if you don't, you are completely cursed in God's eyes. Do you understand that? The second one is in James 2.10. Listen. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. So that, that nice looking man in his white shirt and his tie who chose that day with his little temple bride to go into Rubio's and break the Sabbath day, exchange money, cause people to work, he is guilty of adultery. He's guilty of lying. He's guilty of stealing, of not honoring his father and mother, of every of the Ten Commandments, of the whole law which he says he obeys. Do you see how serious it is in the thing that they are under? Okay, 
these inanities break my heart. They anger me because this religion puts good people, like that guy, I'm sure, is probably a, a good guy in his heart. He tries. I mean, his heart's evil, but he's probably trying to do good. And it puts them under into a place where they are being cursed by God by virtue of their willingness to break these laws that they say they uh, are going to save them. All right, with that, how about a moment from the Word? Last week, we covered Jesus' response to Philip, who asked Jesus to show him the way. And Jesus replied, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Tonight, Jesus continues to speak, and, and he says to Philip, If you had known me, Philip, you should have known my Father also. And from henceforth you know him and have seen him. Philip said unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus said unto him, Have I been so long time with you? And hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself. But the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. These passages are so pregnant with meaning as to who Jesus is relative to the Father. It's hard to know where to even begin, but let me try as we examine, uh, try to give these passages some justice. In, in, in verse 7, Jesus says to Philip, If you had known me, you should have known my Father also, and from henceforth you know him and have seen him. The LDS missionaries will read this, and they will say it means Jesus looks so much like his Father physically that when you see Jesus, it means you have seen the Father. It's like somebody who says, Hey, you're Frank's son. Looking at you, it's just like looking at Frank. That's how they say you got to interpret that passage, that Jesus looks physically so much like the Father. The idiocy runs deep. To Christians, Jesus Christ was sent to reveal the Father, the invisible God, the consuming fire, through human flesh. Hebrews 1.3, speaking of Jesus, says, Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Colossians 1.15 says of Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Speaking of Jesus, who uh, he proved as God nearly 13 verses earlier, John says in John 1.14, and the word, meaning Jesus, was made flesh and dwelt among us. Listen, and we beheld his glory and the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Like the LDS, Philip did not understand Jesus. So back in John 14, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and it will suffice us. It will, it will satisfy what I'm asking. And listen to how Jesus responds. He says, have I been so long with you and yet thou hast not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Listen, the only way Jesus could say this in this way would be if God is one God of three persons. To see Jesus is to see the invisible God, is to understand him, is to see his works and his glory and his love. Jesus' flesh was not God, but 
what was encased within his flesh, all the glory, all the light, all the fire, all the power that comes with it, that was God. So when Philip said to Jesus, show us the Father, Jesus was like, what do I need to do to prove to you that I reveal him completely, Philip? And he wraps it up with verse 10, believest thou that I am in the Father and the Father in me? With the Father existing as an invisible spirit and Jesus as God being in spirit, then they, being in each other is entirely possible. If God is a spirit and invisible, him being in Jesus and Jesus' spirit being in the Father is entirely possible and the passage makes sense. But if the LDS version that the Father is in a body of flesh and bone, it would be impossible for the Father to be in the Son and for the Son to be in the Father. And with that, let's have a word of prayer. Father God, we seek your help and love and guidance. We pray for those who are seeking for truth that they will come upon the station or the program. And we pray for those who are seeking now, who are struggling with their faith, that you will reveal yourself to them. Bless those who volunteer and support. Help the ministry to grow in the face of the exponential growth of Mormonism today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, Derek, the mic clock's off, so I don't know our time. We left off last week in our verse-by-verse -verse examination of the Book of Mormon with Lehi and his family landing their handmade wooden ship uh, on the Americas. And according to chapter 18, uh, they found cows, horses, oxen, and asses, which uh, Joseph didn't realize did not exist in the Americas until the Europeans brought them over 2,000 years later. According to Joseph Smith, they also discovered plenty of gold, silver, and copper. We're going to pick it up in chapter 19. And we're going to try to finish First uh, uh, Nephi uh, going through verse by verse. And it says there uh, that Nephi is told by God to make another set of brass plates. Uh, I would suggest that this is where Joseph transitions in the explanation of the lost 116 pages. It is here in the Book of Mormon that Joseph begins to deliver a religious text to the Book of Mormon of a highly religious nature to make up and give a different version of what those lost 116 pages uh, 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 were talked about. And so it's here when he says, we landed in the Americas and I needed to make a new set of plates that we now have this new set of plates and the information is gonna come from them. Prior, uh, the lost 116 pages of Joseph Smith's Book of Mormon were essentially historical uh, narrative. But to cover his tracks, he ventured into a new direction with these new plates that Nephi was commanded to make. And on the new set of plates, he is instructed to only include the more plain and precious parts of their history, leaving out any unnecessary events which might alleviate excess inscriptions, which certainly were hard to do to take a, 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 a stylist and engrave it in these plates. And so Nephi is commanded, now shorten up your sentences and let's keep it clean. So remember, Nephi didn't have anything on the plates unless it was sacred, but he does admit that he might make some mistakes as he's writing. And just he says, just like the guys of the Bible did. Okay, That's in the Book of Mormon, 1 Nephi 19.6. He says, nevertheless, I do not write anything upon the plate, save it be that I think it be sacred. And now if I do err, even did they err of old. What he's saying there is if I make a mistake, so did they make mistakes when they wrote the text of the Bible. Not that I would excuse myself because of other men, he says, but because of the weakness which is in me according to the flesh, I would excuse myself. You got to understand something about this. 
Christians call the original autographs that, for instance, Isaiah received from inspiration inerrant, without error, without error at all, you see. But in the Book of Mormon, uh, chapter 19, 1 Nephi chapter 19, 6, Joseph Smith says, I, if there's errors in this, they erred when they wrote the Bible too. And I'm not excusing myself, he says, because of other men's weaknesses, but nevertheless, they could come out that way. This is all the makeup of a man trying to cover his tracks. Um, but here Joseph Smith says otherwise. So 600 years before Jesus is born, 1 Nephi 19.8 goes back and speaks about his birth. Uh, because some of the facts that the Book of Mormon brings out now about Jesus are not mentioned in the Old Testament, uh, uh, Joseph created some new prophets to reveal these things, Zenoch, Nehem, and Zenos. And all three of these prophets knew things about Jesus, that he would be crucified, that there would be darkness, and uh, that they, he would be spit on. And all of those things are included uh, in verses 10 through 23 of chapter 19. And uh, there's a lot of talk about the house of Israel too, Nephi's brethren, all this stuff. This is beginning to tap into the theme of which the view of the Hebrews brought to Joseph Smith constructing the Book of Mormon. Finally, Nephi says he's going to uh, swipe a couple of chapters from the book of Isaiah. And this is uh, what Joseph had Nephi write about the scriptures uh, recording to the brass plates and that they brought over from Jerusalem. In fact, we're going to skip that graphic. Uh, this ends chapter 19 of 1 Nephi. To wrap up tonight, um, before we go to a lot more stuff, 1 Nephi chapter 20, verse 3, Joseph quotes from Isaiah directly. And uh, you have to tell me, you have to know that um, Joseph Smith loves the phrase, it came to pass. He, we've talked about that many times. When he quotes directly from Isaiah in the Book of Mormon, Isaiah actually uses the phrase, it came to pass. But in Joseph putting it into the Book of Mormon, he took that line out. Joseph uses it came to pass before and after his bookends throughout the whole book. But when he actually quotes from Isaiah, who uses that line, Joseph removed, it came to pass. Why? Because Joseph didn't want the reader to think that he had borrowed from the Bible. So he took his favorite line that Isaiah used, it came to pass. He removed it from the, the uh, copy he put into the uh, Book of Mormon. Amazing. In 1 Nephi 22, 15, Joseph had Nephi write some 500 years before Christ that uh, he, he wrote, wrote and he quoted a passage from Malachi, okay? Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. This is 600 years before uh, 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 that time, suppose. well, 400 years before that time. So in the Book of Mormon, 1 Nephi, Joseph is quoting from a passage in Malachi which has not been written yet in terms of time. Malachi wasn't even born. Malachi had not even received that revelation to write in the Bible. But Joseph Smith is quoting it well before his birth. Can you see the anachronism and the plagiarism? And that, that passage is in Malachi um, chapter, I don't have it, chapter 4, I believe. I didn't put it in my notes, sorry. And then finally... Um, in 1 Nephi 22, verse 20, Joseph Smith, he takes from Peter's writings in 1 Peter, and in those writings, Peter is paraphrasing Deuteronomy. Joseph did not use the Deuteronomy text to write into the Book of Mormon. 
he used Peter's paraphrasing of the Deuteronomy text when he put it into the Book of Mormon. Again, showing some thousand, I don't know how many years before Peter was born, that he was, he was borrowing from the Bible. Borrowing, putting it in, and this thing has not been that articulate because I have a lot of my mind with stuff going on around me. But bottom line, uh, you can look up those passages, compare them to what we're talking about, and you will see the plagiarism that exists from both Malachi and from Peter. And that wraps up the uh, first book of Nephi, and we're going to get into 2nd Nephi next week and continue on just with the highlighted verses that are out of character or out of text. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-973-8820, 801-973-TV20. First time callers, please. LDS callers, if at all possible. I don't know what callers are on what line. You're going to tell me? Okay. And please turn your television sets off while you're waiting uh, to come. Are there callers waiting yet? Okay. Uh, let me, uh, I mean cleared yet. Let me say this, and this is frightening. Uh, but it's biblical, and it's very frightening for what Joseph Smith introduced, so stay with me on this concept. In the book of Hebrews, we learn what priesthood is since Christ came. He is our high priest. He's our only high priest, making intercession full-time before the Father in the courts on high. Uh, Mormonism has created a fictitious priesthood. They call it their priesthood, and by this priesthood, they say they exercise their powers to do things. One of those things is to supposedly seal families together for time and all eternity by the power of this false priesthood. Well, if this priesthood is not God's, does it have a power, and where does that power come from, and will the power exist beyond the grave? Now, in the temple, there is a phrase that talks about this power, and a person says relative to the priesthood power that the power in the priesthood would be upon them and their posterity through all generations of time and through all eternity. What that says is that this power of the priesthood will be upon, they invoke this blessing upon themselves and upon all their children and all their children's children for time and throughout all eternity. This is something that they do in the temple. They invoke the power of this false priesthood upon all generations, okay? And Joseph claimed this teaching came by way of revelation. And so it came as a prophetic teaching. Now, if you look, my friend Dave pointed this out, Ezekiel 14.10, it says that if a false prophet speaks a matter that is false and people follow him, it says in Ezekiel 14.10 that the people shall bear the punishment of their iniquity. The punishment of the prophet shall be even as the punishment of him that seeketh the prophet. So what it says there is that if you have a person who follows the false prophet, the punishment of the, on, that will be upon the prophet is going to be upon the people who followed the prophet. So tie this all in together. We have a man who says there is a priesthood that was restored, a false priesthood, and he made it up. It has a power that does not come from God. It comes from something else. It, with that false priesthood, they tie their whole posterity for all generations to time to themselves, and they seal families together forever. I realize that this observation may be off, but the Lord just may grant the promise to, all, to Joseph and to everybody who followed them that they will be sealed with their families forever and ever. But it's not going to be in heaven. It is not going to be in heaven. And so they will, re they will receive the reward of following that prophet. It's scary 
but it is absolutely biblical and it's absolutely true. Uh, line one, I have no idea who it is. You're on the air. Hello, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well, how are you? I'm, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm an ex-Mormon. I've uh, been detached for a long time, sipped the Kool-Aid, uh, drank a, a big mouthful and got very sick. And you have to talk louder, my friend. I can't hear you. I said, uh, I used to be a Mormon, but I'm, uh, I'm not trying to get off topic. But I did something that just came up. Have you ever heard of the Strengthening Church Members Committee? Yes, I have. And those are ex-CIA and FBI agents involved in that? I don't know about that, but I know that they have a committee yes. that oversees people. Yes, and what they say is they're protecting against polygamists that is trying to come against the church. This is their foundation, right? Oh, we got to turn down the house sound. I cannot hear this man. So just turn the house sound down. Say it again, sir. It says uh, that, <clears throat> that they are basically trying to protect the church from polygamous or any bad publicity. Yeah, they protect the church from anything. That's they right. And they go around, they try to distort the truth, and they try to uh, discredit people that speak the truth uh, about them. They say they don't shun, they say they don't ostracize, and they don't discriminate against ex-Mormons, which is a lie. It's a lie. It's a dirty lie because they use intimidation, uh, it's witchcraft, manipulation, intimidation, and domination to bring these people back in. They try and they take their jobs, they take their reputability, and they try to separate them from their families to manipulate them to come back into uh, this cult. Absolutely. Practice. And the thing is, is that these people that are involved, that are covert, are being trained by our government and our taxpayer money in the CIA and the FBI to use uh, their teachings. The only problem I have, I don't know your name because we don't have the graphic, but the, the only problem I have with the claim is we don't know that it's the ex-CIA, ex-FBI who are running the strengthening members, David. There, there is some in there, and, they, and uh, from what I gather, and I can't really come back because I don't have the documentation a little, a lot, but this yeah. is by word of mouth. Yeah, it's word of mouth. I know. This uh, committee. I know. I know it's a committee. I know it's true. I know it's real. I know they look for people who are troublemakers. Yes. Yeah, but who runs it, I couldn't tell you. Okay, well, then, basically, we know already that if you're a non-believer, it's by any means possible to not let, uh, not let anybody discredit their doctrine and their distortions, and every time that they're asked about any of this stuff, they say they don't know. But that's all they do is got to go to what Joseph Smith said and what Brigham Young said and what their prophets have said, but they will not go there because it discredits them. Because if the tree, if the root is corrupt, the whole tree is, is rotten. Amen with that. Thanks so much, David. God bless. God bless you. Bye-bye. We're going to go to Kimball on line two. First of all, quick questions. Uh, uh, someone says... Um, uh, where do I get my authority? I have no authority. Uh, what do you tell a couple, Sean, who lives together who are Christian? I would tell them get married. And a follow-up, what would you tell a non-Christian couple who live together? I would tell them about Jesus. And uh, what do you say, uh, why do you say you are a sinner, a liar, an adulterer, a drug addict? Uh, I say that, that's on the, the screen. I mean, you guys put it all over YouTube and whatever. I say it because in my flesh there dwells no good thing. My flesh is the worst human being. I would quote John Paul Sartre again. I've never met a man more evil than myself. And it is only by the grace and shed blood of Jesus Christ that my flesh is able to conform to a spirit which is completely pure. 
and the spirit of Christ that lives in me, that dwells in me, he makes all things possible on a good level for me. But if I didn't have that Christ in me, if I didn't have him save me, I would still be the same reprobate. And so I don't make any distinctions. Neither did Paul. In his flesh dwells no good thing. No good thing. In my flesh, no good thing. So you guys who pick apart the statement and make big things about it and say, oh, you know, he says he's this and this and he, he thinks sin is okay, that's a lie. I don't think sin is okay at all. I'm grateful that the Lord released me from it, but uh, that's the context of that statement. We're going to Kimball on line two. Kimball, you're on Heart of the Matter. Kimball, you're on the air with Sean. Kimball. Is it two? Can I go to Terry on line three? Terry, you're on Heart of the Matter. Terry? Harry? Carrie? Jerry? It's none of those. Don't know what's happened. It's a nightmare around here, folks. Everything's going apart. Pray for us that the whole place won't burst into flames before the show's over. Okay. Sean, what do you think about another email? Uh, Art, what do you think about seeing uh, R-rated movies? I think the same thing about seeing G-rated movies and PG-rated movies and whatever. A movie is a movie. It's not what goes in, it's what comes out. If the movie has merit, if the movie isn't bent on giving me a gratuitous sex and violence and language, and it's bent on some art form and there's something in it that causes it to be R, I prefer that over some teenage movie that's rated PG-13 where they're just making out all the time and, and you know, alluding to the fact that, ooh, uh, you know, movie, movie. Get over it. Why do you need all these little rules, uh, you people? Uh, how come in the first Born Again Mormon you recognize existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, he's an atheist. Uh, we can learn from all people. I don't think I've learned uh, any gospel truth from Jean-Paul Sartre, but I have learned other things, and so I have no problem saying that they influence your thinking, and you can look at things and learn and grow. And uh, even Paul talked to the Greeks about their philosophers. So, you know, again, a lot of, um, lot of uh, whatever questions going on. You say the gospel is only to believe Jesus was born, died for sin, buried, rose three days later, witnessed by many. Sean, we, meaning he's Mormon, believe the same thing. So why can't we be saved? Because you believe more. You believe more, and that's another gospel. You can't, you can't say just because there's a grain of sugar in this that this is sugar water. It's got to be full of sugar. It's got, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The pure gospel is 100% pure sugar or salt, or whatever you want to use. And Mormonism takes a little few grains and throws the truth in there, but it adds a whole bunch of other stuff that goes counter to what that gospel message is. The LDS call the gospel not what I just described. The LDS say their gospel is... You're born, pre-existence, you know, you live, you obey the rules, you get baptized, receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, go, go on a mission, obey, go to the temple, get sealed for time and all eternity, work your brains out, all, obey the commandments with exactness, then you go on to become a god in the future. All that stuff is extra biblical and not Christian, therefore not the gospel. Uh, do we have anybody? Uh, Terry, back on line two. Terry, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, John. Uh, I'm a first-time caller, and I, uh, I wanted to uh, 
you were talking about the, the caffeine thing, and I remember uh, I was LDS and lived in California, and this was about uh, 1970 or 71, and uh, they had, we were hearing all the time about, you know, you can't drink caffeine, it's uh, in Coke and everything, you can't have any of that stuff. Uh, because of the word of wisdom, uh, and then I uh, some incidents happened, and we ended up moving to Salt Lake City. Uh, we we felt it would be great if we could move into the shadow of the temple. Uh, when we got here, we found out the only thing in shadows was darkness. But uh, we uh, I went. My bishop told me to I could go down to the church employment office and try and find a, uh, employment. And I went in there, and as you walk in the door, there's a giant Coke machine there. Yeah. And I really freaked out because, uh, you know, we're not supposed to drink Coke, so why does the church have a Coke machine in there? Exactly. And I found out they were saying that, well, they, they, don't, uh, they don't really keep that, uh, they don't follow that here because all of the Coke distributors uh, are owned by church members or bishops. I believe it. Hey, Terry, really good insight. I appreciate it because it backs up. You know, I experienced the same kind of thing, and most Latter-day Saints do. And so this pronouncement, it's just, it's just puppeteering. And, you know, uh, really good call. Really appreciate it, my friend. Thank you. Take care. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. We're going to Kimball. He's LDS, a first-time caller. Kimball, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yes, you're Sean. On, you're on the air, Kimball. Okay. Um... I just had a question. Does does Jesus Jesus has a body? So does God have a body? Because because Jesus has a body. Um, Jesus has a body. Jesus became incarnate. Jesus. Yeah, but does he still does he still have a body? As when you, absolutely, when you, absolutely, because he's going to return with it. Remember, he ascended with it, and he needs to return with it. Yes. Okay, that's that's what I wanted to know. So God is all-consuming fire, and He's also His spirit, and He's also He also has a body. Then, right? Uh, Jesus has the body incarnate. Right. Yeah, the Father does not have a body. But but Jesus is God, right? Yes, Jesus is God. He is a personage of God. Yes. Okay, so then he has a body. That's what I was wondering. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, it's it's a nice downplay on the thing. Yeah, Jesus has a body. Yes, he does. The Father, no body, no body. Okay, that's that's what I was wondering. Yeah. Because I was curious about God. Yeah. And you want to you want to go on with this drama? No, no. That's all I wanted to know. I I just wanted to know about God. Yeah, uh, it sounds very humble and very like you're really seeking. But let me ask you something. So what do you think the Father has? I believe he's an all-consuming fire and worshiping yeah, spirit and truth like it says in the Bible. Yeah, well, then you're a very smart man, and I, I praise God for your knowledge. I agree with you completely. But I, well, I, was, I was just wondering, because Jesus was resurrected, so God also has a body, but it's Jesus' it's Jesus's body. Yeah, Jesus, who became incarnate to reveal the Father to us fallen people. That's right. You're, you're thinking right along the right lines now. Thank you. You're welcome. I want to tell you something, that his train of thought was standard LDS for trying to refute the Trinity. And when they do this, so Jesus, uh, so God has a body then. 
No, Jesus has the body. So, but does Jesus, and so what, it, what, what he was doing was trying, he was putting out there that he was just trying to really understand this, at the same time trying to teach that it's not logical to believe that Jesus is God, that Jesus has a body, but that the Father does not have a body. And so I, I, I would probably bet, not a betting man, I don't like to lose money, but I'd bet 100 bucks right now. That man is LDS. I bet 100 bucks right now that he was calling to get that across. Uh, but he was good at it. Let's go to uh, James and Brentwood. James, you're on Heart of the Matter. We've got one minute, James. All right, thank you, Sean. Uh, real quick, um, uh, is my friend who is a Mormon, the other day I talked to him and he said, I was praying wrong if I was to start my prayers with Jesus in heaven, then pray, 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 you know, say what I'm going to say. He, you know, he made a suggestion that I pray, Father in heaven, end it in Jesus' name, or my prayers fall dead. Do you have an opinion on that? I think that in Scripture we have people praying to Jesus after his ascension. Uh, we have uh, Stephen, I think the first martyr, said, uh, Jesus, save me. Uh, we have uh, other instances of people praying to him. And so I, I think that the LDS missionaries, they teach, a, it's called the order of prayer. And it's, it's taken from how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Uh, and you know, the whole thing. And, the, and then he told them to pray in his name. I see that as a very good form of prayer. You, you pray to the Father. But I do not believe for a second that when someone cries out to Jesus and, call, and prays to Jesus that those prayers fall on deaf ears. He is our intermediary. Uh, the LDS have formulated many things to make them religious systems that are proprietary religious products for their religion. And they stick by that. But I would completely renounce what he's saying that your prayers fall on deaf ears. I mean, what about someone who just looks up and says God and doesn't use any of the, the other uh, uh, titles? Does God hear their prayers? I think so. We are out of time. I'm sorry to cut you off, my friend. Uh, listen, this uh, week, Thursday night, 7 p.m., Calvary Chapel, Cedar City. They're also having a training at Good Shepherd Lutheran for transitions. And then the following week on the 15th in Spanish Fork, they're going to have the Good News Celebration. And then later on, you're going to be able to see uh, Dr. Geisler speaking at Grace Bible in Sandy. Check all that out. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.